Good morning, good morning to you, you. Good morning, good morning to you and many more. Good morning, good morning, good morning, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues. I am your host, Shantae Charles. I hope that you're having a great and wonderful day. Today is Thinking Thursday, Theology Thursday, and we are back in Esau Macaulay's work, Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. I do have a new announcement to make about our Black Table Talk segments that have been happening on Tuesdays. We are moving the time for Black Table Talk to 12 noon on Tuesdays. So I want you to make note of that. Um, Beginning next Tuesday, we will be on at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time instead of 11 a.m. And that is going to continue through the rest of this season 13. Now, hopefully we'll go back to 11 a.m. for our new season. But for now, We're going to be moving that time again to 12 noon on Tuesday. So don't look for me on Black Table Talk at 11 a.m. Look for me at 12 noon. All right. So I want to um, put that out there. And then as we begin to wind up on this book here, Reading While Black, we will be um, switching over to do some study on the New Testament and Jewish law, a guide for the perplexed. There are a lot of things in the New Testament. There are a lot of things in Jewish law that people just don't explain. And so to get a better understanding, if you are interested in that kind of work, if you're interested in the scholarly side of understanding the New Testament, We're going to be hopping into this after we get done with Esau Macaulay's work. So I look forward to that because this is my jam. I am all about learning the intricacies of what we are reading with the text. And if we have some time, I don't know, I might hold this for season 14. But we will be moving on to this book here entitled Failures of Forgiveness how to do better, what we get wrong, and how to do better. I think so many people have a misguided understanding or abused the concept of forgiveness. And I really think we need to look again at what it means to forgive, uh, context, all of that. And um, this young lady here has actually done the work of really kind of diving into um, forgiveness. And so we will be taking a look at this book. So if you want to think about maybe grabbing it an audio copy or the ebook or a physical copy, whichever one suits you, and you want to start getting prepared to read with us our next um, theological reads that we'll be reading on Thursdays. Again, we're going to hop into... The New Testament and Jewish Law, A Guide for the Perplexed by James Crossley, C-R-O-S-S-L-E-Y. And 
Failures of Forgiveness, What We Get Wrong, and How to Do Better by Maisha Cherry. This is a new release. Uh, she just released this on last year. So we're going to have a good, some good theological breakdowns and conversations coming up with those two reads. All right. We're back again in Esau Macaulay's work, and we are on the chapter, What Shall We Do With This Rage? We are going to finish this chapter today and possibly make it over into chapter seven, which is entitled The Freedom of the Enslaved, Pennington's Triumph, The Freedom of the Enslaved. All right. Subsection, page 133. The resurrection and the final judgment as necessary addendums. It would be dishonest to say that the account above is always emotionally satisfying. There are times when I look at the present and the historic suffering of my people and I feel close to Psalm 137, closer than I do to Luke 23:34. Father, forgive them. That is fine because I am not yet fully formed into the likeness of Christ. Psalms 137 is a part of the canon for a reason. This side of the second coming, there will continue to be Babylons. As long as there is a Babylon, the oppressed will weep beside its willows. Nonetheless, it is precisely when the wooing of the cross feels its weakest that I must do the hard work of asking myself the most important questions. Is Christianity a hypothesis or a method of approaching the world? Did the Messiah provide us with a philosophy like Socrates or Nas? If Christianity is just a mere method, a way of approaching reality, then it is inadequate. But if Christ is risen, trampling down death by death, then the world is a different place even when I do not experience it as such. Paul says it perfectly. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. 1 Corinthians fifteen twelve through 19. Without the resurrection, the forgiveness embedded in the cross is a wistful dream of a pious fool. But I am convinced that the Messiah has defeated death. I can forgive my enemies because I believe the resurrection happened. I am convinced the God who had the power to judge me did not. Instead, he invited me into communion with his son, and through that union with the Messiah, I discover the resources to love that I did not possess before. When anger is victorious in my own heart, it never defeats God. Belief in the resurrection requires us to believe that nothing is impossible. If death gives way to the power of God, so does my hate. 
But more than that, resurrection is the final vindication of all black hopes and dreams. If black anger rises from the disregard of black bodies and the failure to see us as persons, then resurrected black and brown bodies are God's final affirmation of our value. When God finally calls the dead to life, he calls them to life with their ethnic identity intact. Revelation 7 and 9. This is something that I personally emphasize to people whenever I am teaching the gospel. Because for some reason, people think that God does not care about our ethnic identity. When in reality, when he finally calls the dead to life, he will call you to life in your ethnic identity, with your ethnic identity intact, in eternity. And yet, Christianity does teach that all will have to give an account for their actions. The final judgment is a source of terrifying comfort. John's apocalypse recounts a scene when the saints who had been martyred asked the question, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? Revelation 6 and 10. John does not respond with, there will be no reckoning. Instead, he says that the time has not yet come. John later speaks of the end in which Babylon is judged for its misdeeds. Revelations 18 verses 21 through 24. God will judge wickedness. The sins that have been committed against us do matter. This is both terrifying. I find it difficult to long for such an outcome, even for my enemies, and comforting because sin is judged. God's terrible power to judge makes me long for everyone to take advantage of his offer of forgiveness. Christian eschatology breeds compassion. Many years into my Christian life, I still feel the anger, but the cross and the reality of God's power have changed me. I want the oppressor to repent and find healing. I want him or her to be free as well. My rage then has hints of sympathy that linger in the back of my most heated moments. Conclusion. It is difficult for African-American believers to look deeply into the history of Christianity and not be profoundly shaken, insomuch as it arises in response to the church's historic mistreatment of African-Americans. The black secular protest against religion is one of the most understandable developments in the history of the West. If they are wrong, it is a wrongness born out of considerable pain. I too am frustrated with the way that scripture has been used to justify the continual assault on black bodies and souls. If we come to different conclusions about the solutions to the problems, it is not because black Christians deny the past. It is simply that we found different solutions within the biblical witness to black suffering and black anger. We do not find fault with the broad center of the great Christian tradition. We lament its distortion by others and the ways in which we have failed to live up to the truths we hold dear. Nonetheless, we are not ashamed of finding hope and forgiveness in and through the cross of Christ. In the end, we plead and have confidence in the blood. Chapter 7, The Freedom of the Enslaved, Pennington's Triumph, Leonard Black. Do you talk of selling a man? You might as well talk of selling immortality or sunshine. 
Exodus 3, verses 7 through 8. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. I remember the pride that I felt when I told my mother I had read the entire Bible from cover to cover. Earlier that summer, she had bought me a comic book version of the scriptures that recounted the major epochs of the biblical story from Genesis to Revelation. I must have read the pastorals, but they were unable to touch me. My imagination was captured by the God of the Exodus, who called the people free to freedom from slavery. I grew up hearing about a God who looked upon the suffering of his black and brown children with righteous indignation. For me, the Bible was a source of hope. Nonetheless, we grow and change. The text grows in complexity as we do. Eventually, I came across Paul's words to slaves. The weight of the legacy of slavery in the United States landed in full force upon my imagination. 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2. Let all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their masters as worthy of honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be blasphemed. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful to them on the ground that they are members of the church. They must rather serve them all the more, since those who benefit by their service are believers and beloved. In the hands of white slave owners, the Bible was a tool of oppression. In my first mature pass through Paul, I wondered if they might be right. This passage seems to tell enslaved persons to content themselves with their station. This is exactly how these passages were used to justify slavery in the United States. What are we to make of Paul's legacy? Some African Americans have dealt with it by simply avoiding Paul, but the question is simply too urgent to set aside. Some 130 years before my birth, the black pastor and abolitionist James W.C. Pennington put words to our anxiety. He said, does the Bible condemn slavery without any regard to circumstances or not? I for one desire to know. My repentance, my faith, my hope, my love, my perseverance, all, I conceal it not, I repeat it, all turn upon this point. If I'm deceived here, if the word of God does sanction slavery, I want another book, another repentance, another faith, and another hope. The question for Pennington was not whether this verse or that verse condoned it. His questions revolved around the character of God. If the Bible supported the kidnapping of black bodies, the intimate assault of black men and women, the separation of families, the whip and the chain, then he needed another book altogether. He needed another faith and another hope. In a sense, the question behind all questions for the black Christians is this one. Did God intend our freedom? Our reflections on the Bible and the black Christian then should end here at the origin of all our problems, the question of the Bible and enslavement. Asking about slavery in the way that Pennington does with 1 Timothy 6 and 1 through 3 in the canon appears to risk too much. It seems to risk the resurrection. On first glance, it puts the communion of saints, the Eucharist, the gathering of every tribe and nation in danger. It can feel like a reckless form of inquiry but we must press into it. Does the Bible sanction what happened to black bodies on this continent? On the first read, the Bible does not appear to say all that we want it to say in the way that we want the Bible to say it. And yet this is the crucial part. The Bible says more than enough. 
<clears throat> excuse me. The story of Christianity does not on every page legislate slavery out of existence. Nonetheless, the Christian narrative, our core theological principle, and our ethical imperative create a world in which slavery becomes unimaginable. The Bible, taken in its entirety, remains a light in a dark and broken world. It is their fault that slave masters took so long to walk out of darkness and into the light. To make this case, I want to begin by highlighting how Jesus's interpretive method allows us to state plainly that God did not intend our slavery. <coughs> Excuse me. Then we will examine select Old and New Testament texts that allow us to imagine a world where God is king and slavery ended. Bible reading, slavery, and God's purposes. Toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he found himself in constant conflict with his opponents as he journeyed toward Jerusalem. On one occasion, the Pharisee came to question him on divorce, an issue seemingly a world away from our subject of slavery. But it is worth quoting in full. Matthew 19, verses 3 through 8. Some Pharisees came to him, and to test him they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female? He said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. They said to him, Well, why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her? He said to them, it was because you were so hard-hearted that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. The Pharisees wanted Jesus to interpret Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4 and other parts of the Torah that dealt with the question of divorce. They had no plans of debating the practice of divorce, but rather the circumstances of its application. Here, the divorce question is similar to the enslaved question as it was handed and handled by the slave masters of the antebellum South. They maintained that the options were biblical slavery versus bad slavery. The problem was not slavery itself, which had a strong biblical support, but the excesses of a few. Many scholars have discussed the seemingly hard stance against divorce that Jesus presents here. That is not my concern. My focus is on the exegetical, exegetical reasoning that he uses to make his case. He does not engage the text that his opponents have in mind. Instead, he turns to the opening words of Genesis. He speaks about God's creational intent. The question for Jesus is not what the Torah allows, but what God intended. Jesus argued that before the fall, there was no divorce, and therefore we were not made for divorce. Instead, man and woman were made to enjoy each other forever. This seems to leave his opponent stunned. Why have these passages at all? Jesus replies that Moses instituted these laws because of their hardness of heart. He wanted them to remember that it was not this way from the beginning. Jesus' argument here suggests that the norms for Christian ethics are not the passages that are allowances for human sin, such as Moses' divorce laws. What matters is that we were made what we were made to be. Jesus shows that not every passage of the Torah 
presents the ideal for human interactions. Instead, some passages accept the world as broken and attempt to limit the damage that we do to one another. This means that when we look at the passages in the Old Testament, we have to ask ourselves about their purpose. Do they present a picture of what God wanted us to be, or do they seek to limit the damage that is arising from a broken world? Paul speaks in a similar way when he says that the law was instituted because of sin and functioned as our guardian until the coming of Christ. This does not mean that the law is bad, nor does it dismiss the formative role that the law played on Christian ethics, but it does mean that sometimes the law limits the damage that we do to one another. So we come to the most urgent of questions right away. When we turn to the opening of Genesis and look at the creation account, is there any evidence that God intended the descendants of Adam and Eve to enslave one another, or is slavery a manifestation of the fall? If slavery is a result of the fall, then it is false to claim that God's will is enslavement. It is also false to claim that the Bible presents slavery as a good thing for black people. Slavery is always and forever wrapped in sin. One way to see this is to turn our eyes from Genesis and move toward Revelation. What is God's vision for the reconciliation of all things? It is a community of the healed and transformed and not the enslaved. If Christian ethics is about living now in light of the coming future, then the coming future freedom of all people has to at some point become flesh in the formerly enslaved bodies whose very physical freedom is enacted in a parable of the gospel. I want to contend that the Old Testament and later New Testament create an imaginative world in which slavery becomes more and more untenable. Stated differently, God created a people who could theologically deconstruct slavery. We rightly have complaints that it seemed to take some 1,800 years before a significant number of Christians came to this conclusion. We do have to recognize that Christians began to make strong theological cases against slavery as early as the 4th century in a way that would stand out among their non-Christian peers. What is even more interesting is that no society that preceded the 18th century abolitionists contended that slavery itself was fundamentally immoral. The widespread move to abolish slavery is a Christian innovation. So, we are going to stop there because I think he has laid down some good, good, good foundation. And I find this to be interesting because um, one of the things that if you have studied um, white supremacy or you have gone and, and started reading some of their doctrines and their beliefs, they actually believe that slavery is going to continue into eternity. They believe that black people are going to be enslaved in eternity and serve white people, which is the exact opposite of what the Bible actually teaches, as Esau uh, here points out. All right. I'm going to open it up for some discussion today. If you would like to join me on camera to talk about these issues, please feel free to click on the camera and I will bring you on. If you are listening by Google Play, Spotify, or any other streaming platform, 
This has been another episode of Daring Dialogues, and I've been your host today, Shante Charles. I hope that you're thinking about this question um, and looking at some of the scriptures that we have referenced on today. I want to thank you for your time and attention. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness, so continue to go out and be light. Take care, be well, and most importantly, be light.